Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins partners Lee Richards and Margaret Myers are joined by the Honorable Denny Chin of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit to discuss litigating in the federal district and appellate courts. Informed by his 26 years of federal experience, Judge Chin shares some best practices for attorneys appearing in the district and appellate courts, describes his experience sentencing white-collar criminal defendants under the post-Booker guidelines, and reflects on the importance of diversity in the legal profession. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Hello, my name is Lee Richards and with me is Margaret Myers. We are both partners in the New York office of Perkins Coie. Judge Denny Chin, we are honored that you have agreed to join us for this discussion about litigating in both federal district and appellate courts. I know that Margaret is especially pleased to be having this opportunity to speak with you today because she was lucky enough to be one of your clerks. And this is special for me because of our long friendship. We need to remind our listeners of the length and breadth of your career in the law. After attending Princeton as an undergraduate in Fordham Law School, you clerked for the Honorable Henry Worker in the Southern District of New York, then joined Davis Polk for several years before becoming an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District. After your service there, you started your own law firm with two former assistants and later joined the Vladek Law Firm where you specialized in labor and employment law. 26 years ago, you were appointed to the District Court in the Southern District of New York by President Clinton where you presided over cases involving Bernie Madoff, Megan's Law, the Million Youth March, and the Google Books Project, among so many others. In 2010, you were elevated to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals by President Obama, with unanimous consent from the Senate. So you bring to this discussion of lawyering and judging in white collar and other cases a wealth of invaluable experience. We thank you again for joining us today. Well, thank you, Lee, and and thank you, Margaret. I first met Lee when I was a law clerk uh, back in 1979 or so. So we really have known each other a long time. And one of the best things we did when we started our little law firm in 1986 was to sublet space from you. It was a pleasure working with you in those offices and you provided us with uh, so much guidance. And Margaret, you were one of my uh, favorite all-time law clerks. And so I am delighted to be joining uh, both of you this conversation. Judge, we're so pleased to have you here. I'm, I'm blushing. Thank goodness we're on a podcast. I, it's such an honor for us to have you here. I learned so much from you during the year I served as your law clerk and from your mentorship ever since. And it's a pleasure to have you here and to be able to switch roles and interview you. Uh, so as Lee described, you have a vast range of experience from your years on both the district court and the appellate court and from seeing thousands of lawyers appear before you. I'd like to begin today by asking about some of the attorney advocacy you found effective in each of those two forums, particularly in white collar cases. Let's start with your experience in the district court and the nuts and bolts skills for trial. 
What what approaches do you think are effective in arguments to the jury during openings and closings? Well, first of all, I'm a little bit leery about giving advice on trying cases since I was kicked upstairs, you know, 11 years or, or so um, ago. Although I missed the trial court and I've actually tried 12 cases uh, as um, a, a circuit judge. Uh, the last one was um, a couple of uh, years ago. But... You know, trials are about telling a story. What is the case about? You want to tell a, a strong, dramatic story. You want to capture the jury's attention. You want to lay out your themes. You want to engage the jury and draw it in. And I'm a big believer in keeping it short and sweet, clear and simple. You don't want to be defensive. One of the best openings I, I heard was a, a young federal defender. You know, quite often defense lawyers will start by talking about how the government has the heavy burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and this young lawyer started off her opening, not even introducing herself, simply saying, this was a gun case, simply saying, John Smith is not guilty. He did not possess that gun. And I just thought it was a, a, a an excellent way of getting things going, simple and, and very easy uh, for the jury to, to understand. Thank you. Another important trial skill is examining witnesses on direct and cross-examination. What kinds of witness examinations have you seen by lawyers in the district court that impressed you? Yeah, you know, you'll hear common themes, whether it's examining witnesses or writing a brief or, or giving a, a, a summation. And what you want is pace, movement, rhythm. You, you want things to, 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 to move along. You know, on direct examination, you want your witness to tell the story. The focus is on your witness. You're asking open-ended questions, who, what, where. Whereas on cross, you want to be putting words into the witness's mouth. You're asking leading questions. Usually there are yes or no questions and for all of this, whether it's, it's the trial as a whole or, or, or whether it's a particular examination, you, you need to choreograph it. You need to think about timing. Am I going to end at the, in a good spot at the end of the day? You have to keep your eye on the clock. You want to start strong. You want to you wanna end strong. And you also want to listen. You, know, uh, you will often get cues from the witnesses. Is there some hesitation? Is the witness trying to answer the question too precisely? And these are things that should trigger follow-up questions on, on your part. And, and by the way, I wanted to mention that one of the best closings I saw was given by my now colleague on the Second Circuit, uh, Richard Sullivan. Judge Sullivan was a terrific prosecutor in the Southern District uh, for, for many years. And he, he and I actually tried four cases together. And one of the trials was involving uh, someone who had slashed a cooperator in prison. And the cooperator was cut from one ear to the other ear to mark him as a rat. And, and in his closing, then uh, AUSA Sullivan said, do you think they cut him because they were afraid he was going to lie? Or did they cut him because they were afraid he was going to tell the truth? And it, it was just very powerful. Of course, it made great sense, and it was done in a way that the jury could really understand. You mentioned a minute ago that you have 
conducted 12 trials since you by designation since you were elevated to the second circuit. I remember once when I was clerking for you in the second circuit and you were presiding over a district court trial by designation, you reprimanded a prosecutor who took a very aggressive approach with a witness on cross-examination. How do you think lawyers should behave toward a witness they're cross-examining? Yeah, well, of course it will depend on the witness, you know, who the witness is. You, you want to cross-examine a cooperator who has committed multiple murders differently from cross-examining a, a widow who lost her husband and is trying to recover insurance benefits. So it will depend. But, but you know, in my experience, juries were somewhat forgiving and, and they did not like it when lawyers were too harsh. There will be times when you want to try and really tear apart, tear down uh, a witness. There will be other times when you want to handle it differently, and, that, and that's one of the, um, the challenges. Judge, I wonder whether you think about cross-examination in particular differently when it comes to behavior by prosecutors and behavior by private lawyers, particularly with respect to destructive cross-examination. Do you, do you think there are different standards depending upon which side of the case you're on? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I expect prosecutors to act differently, behave differently from defense lawyers. The government is representing the United States, the people. The goal is justice you know, whether it's a, a conviction or whether it's an uh, acquittal. A defense lawyer is representing her client, you know, and, and her goal is an acquittal. And so, you know, you, you expect more in some sense from the government. Also, of course, in criminal cases, in many criminal cases, prosecutors are not doing any cross-examination since quite often, uh, most of the time, there isn't a defense case or there isn't much of a defense case. So the approach has to be very different. But, you know, Lee, of course, you're an alum of the Southern District as well. And, and you expect the government to do the right thing. You expect the government to help make a proper record. You certainly don't expect the government to create a bad record. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 the good experienced assistants, if they saw that there might be an issue, would even correct the judge, of course, in a, a, a diplomatic way. But, but those are the kinds of things that, that, that we expect. On appeal, by the way, in a criminal case, I will usually read the red brief first. I'll usually read the government's brief first because, you know, I, I, I can expect that the government will give a, a more candid, more neutral summary of the case. And, uh, uh, and, and usually the, the red briefs are very well done. I wonder whether you, you think about your role as a judge in any way as an educator. Do, do you talk to the litigants after they've tried cases in front of you or argued before you in the Second Circuit? Well, I don't do it in the Second Circuit. That's not the culture to, to go and have a chat with lawyers after, in part because, of course, we haven't decided the case yet. It was my practice in the trial court to meet with, more often, the government because they were younger lawyers and debrief after a trial. Well, eventually we would we would get together and I would go over mistakes that the prosecutors might have made during the trial, advice on how they could do better. I would occasionally do it with defense lawyers, particularly if I had, for example, a young federal defender. It wasn't something I did with 
experienced members of the defense bar, but it certainly was part of my my role I saw to, to, to help in that respect, to teach in that respect. And after most jury trials, I would also go back and talk to the, the juries. And that was fascinating. I would try not to opine on whether I thought they were right or wrong, but, you know, to go back mainly to ask their questions. And sometimes I would ask, you know, how did you think the lawyers did? What did you like? What did you not like? If I thought there was a chance that I might throw out the verdict, I would not go back. You know, I was also very impressed with the level of attention and care given by by jurors. And they also, I believe, really enjoyed the process. And one of the things I tried to do was to make sure that there wasn't wasted time, that we moved along, that we were mindful of, of their needs so that it would be a, um, um, a good experience uh, for them. You mentioned a minute ago one difference between the trial and appellate courts and how you, you would interact with lawyers. I'm also interested in your perspective on lawyers' arguments to the bench, and in particular, whether you think that attorneys should approach oral arguments differently in the district court from the appellate court, and if so, how? Yeah, there, there is a significant difference. A trial is, is like a marathon, and an oral argument, at least in the Second Circuit, where we usually only give 10 minutes, is like a, uh, a sprint. You know, it's 10 minutes versus perhaps 10 days. Of course, there are many uh, similarities. You know, the good lawyers have a strong courtroom presence, whether it's in the trial court or whether it's in uh, the circuit court. You know, they're well prepared, they're confident, they're direct and responsive. But a trial is a multi-dimensional effort. You are, of course, arguing at times and, 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 and doing an opening or summation or arguing an evidentiary point to the court. But a trial is very much a multi-dimensional effort. In addition to the oral advocacy, there are witnesses, there, there are exhibits, demonstratives, you know, these days, uh, PowerPoints, videos, and, and there's a lot more choreography. And, and the focus shouldn't be so much on you as the lawyer, but on, on all of these um, other things. And the, uh, in the appellate court, the focus is on you. You know, it's you for those 10 minutes and the judges are firing uh, questions uh, at you. It's, it's much more academic. You are not giving a jury summation. You are not pounding the podium. Uh, some of uh, my colleagues have never tried a case, you know, so it's a different kind of a thing. And, and I think the best appellate lawyers are having a conversation with the court. We're just talking. They're not arguing to us. They can sense what is concerning us, and then they offer us something to allay uh, that concern. And, and fortunately, in, in the Second Circuit, we get quite a few of the Supreme Court practitioners multiple times, and, and you can just see that that's what they're doing. They're, they're talking to us. They're, they're, they're trying to convince us, of course, but it's a different kind of a process. And of course, on appeal, you know, the focus is more on the law. You, you have to worry about the standard of review, deference to the trial court. And of course, I'm a big believer that, of that, having been a trial judge myself. Um, someone uh, once described the difference between the trial court and the appellate court as 
the difference between the search for justice and the search for error. And, and from my perspective, I think it's a lot more fun searching for justice. Why is that, Judge? Why do you think it's more fun to search for justice? Well, that's a good question. I just think for me, it's more satisfying, more rewarding trying to figure out what is the right answer, what is the correct answer, rather than trying to figure out whether the trial court screwed up. Of course, that's a bit of an exaggeration. We're not just searching for error. Uh, we often uh, are making law, you know, uh, uh, saying what the law is, resolving open questions of law. And, and so it's a bit of an exaggeration. But, the, in the, but it's true that in the vast majority of the cases, we're, we're, we're searching for, for, for error. I mean, for example, as a uh, trial judge, um, I'm trying to figure out what is the appropriate sentence for this defendant in these circumstances. I, I need to explain myself and articulate my, my reasoning, and then I need to do it uh, in the courtroom in front of other people after having heard from, from all who should be heard from. In the appellate court, I'm reading a transcript of the sentence. I'm not seeing anyone. I'm not looking out and seeing the family members in the back of the courtroom crying. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out whether the sentence is in the ballpark. In a sentencing case, that's essentially the standard of review. And I get one third of a vote because there are three of us. So, you know, I find that less satisfying, less rewarding than the first part, which I think is, is challenging and, and much harder. A lot of what we do in the circuit court is read. A little bit of writing, a lot of reading, some editing of, of uh, colleagues' um, drafts, and then a little bit of time uh, in court. So I also very much uh, miss uh, the action of the uh, trial court. I wonder whether you agree with what a number of great lawyers have said over the years, which is when they get a case, they think, first of all, about the facts and what the right result is, and they worry about the law later. How do you approach judging? Is it at all similar, or is it, is it a different process? Well, I think you, you, it, it certainly makes sense. You start with the facts, what happened. I mean, I try not to be uh, result-oriented. And, you know, I don't learn the facts, understand the facts, and then decide what is the right answer, and then go out and find the law to support that conclusion. Um, I've always felt it was a mistake to be result-oriented, but, but you, you, you should, I agree, you should start with the facts, what happened, then look at the law, and then put them together. Not necessarily go searching for the law that will support you. Now, of course, for a lawyer, it's a different story. You, you, you start off with a result that, that you want, that you need for your client, and so then you are searching for a law to support that result. Uh, it is it is different for us in the court. Turning back to something you said earlier about oral arguments in the circuit court, you said that they should be more of a conversation. Is there anything that that lawyers arguing in the appellate court should not do? I, I think you you want to come in and and be ready to argue your strong points, of course. But the challenge, I think, is to address the questions that will surely come with respect to your weak points. And, and that's why I, I certainly, my biggest pet peeve is lawyers who do not answer the question. 
If it's a yes or no question, the first words out of your mouth should be, yes, your honor, no, your honor. And then you do your song and dance. And of course, on my end, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be probing you on your weaknesses. I want to see how you respond to the other side's strong points. And so, yes, you want to have your strong points ready to go, but you need to be able to respond to the questions that will come about the other side's strong points. If you can give me a satisfactory answer to my questions about your weak points, you're more likely to win. If you just ignore my question, first of all, I'm likely to ask it again, or even worse, one of my colleagues will say, you didn't answer Judge Shin's question, and then you're put into this defensive mode. But but you're, 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 you're less likely to win if you don't address uh, our concerns. But Judge, are there any questions that a lawyer shouldn't answer? Do, do judges ever ask rhetorical questions that are really should not be answered? Well, judges do from time to time ask rhetorical questions and whether they should be answered or not will depend. Should there ever be a time when you don't answer a question? I think yes. You don't want to give away the store. And if, if the question is asking you to give away the store, then find a way to duck it. Well, that, that brings to mind a celebrated question you asked in a very important case not too long ago. You sat on the panel that heard the argument in Trump v. Vance regarding whether or not uh, the Manhattan district attorney could obtain the former president's tax records. And in that argument, you asked the fundamental question. You asked the lawyer for, the, for uh, the former president whether or not the president was truly immune from all prosecution while he was in office. And indeed, you asked him whether or not the president could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and f- not fear prosecution, at least while he was in office. You got an answer to that question. I'm wondering whether or not the answer was one that uh, you thought was wise. Yeah, the, the, the answer was, yes, he would be immune uh, from prosecution and the local authorities could do nothing about it. And that was a ridiculous answer. The lawyer is a very good appellate lawyer and he was well trained and he's trained to answer the question. And so first he did try to dance around it, but I wouldn't let him off the hook. And I, I, I followed up and and. and and then he gave his answer. That is a question I would not have answered. I would have come up with something like, well, of course, Your Honor, that would never happen. The president is surrounded by Secret Service agents. They would never be in a position where he would have a gun and be able to shoot someone, something like that, you know, and and even because the the answer, yes, cannot help you. Um, It it just, you know, hurts your credibility uh, so much. And so, there will be occasions when you should deviate from the general rule that you should answer uh, questions. Thanks, Judge. That's helpful to know that there's always an exception to the rule. Judge, I want to turn a little bit to writing, uh, continuing on our theme of, of s- lawyers' skills. As one of your former law clerks, I know that writing is very important to you and clarity of writing in particular. You've taught legal writing for many years at your alma mater, for- Fordham Law School. And I I was wondering if you could share any words of advice on written advocacy at the district court level versus the appellate court level. Again, if there's any difference and what it is. Yeah, much of it would be the same. Good writing is is good writing. 
There are some differences, of course. You In the district court, uh, you know who your judge is. You're writing for the one judge. On appeal, when you're writing your brief, you don't know who your judges are, and there will be three of them. And and that may affect things. And again, the focus is more on the law and the issues regarding standard of review and, and deference come into play. So there will be uh, a different kind of a writing, I think. But many of the basics are, are the same. I think the key uh, to good writing is a movement, rhythm. You know, like good music, good writing moves. And as you read something, you're just propelled forward. You're not being delayed or, or knocked off track by an awkward sentence. There are transitional phrases that help move you along. The logic is clear. And, and, and so there is this movement which just makes the writing easy to follow. You're, you're, you're making life easy for the reader. For me, one of the most important parts of a brief, particularly on appeal, is the summary of the argument. Sometimes that comes right at the beginning. Sometimes that comes right after the statement of facts and procedural history before you get into the argument. And in that summary of argument, whether it's one page or two pages, you want to capture the big picture, the, the essence of why you should win. And for me, I often go back to that. If I'm writing the opinion, I often go back to the summary of argument to get the key pieces of logic uh, that helped get me to that point where, where, where I was agreeing. It's, it's a very valuable piece of real estate uh, in your brief, um, the summary of the argument. I, and I think that's true in the district court, but I think more so um, in the appellate court. You said earlier, Judge, that you think of good trial lawyers as storytellers. Do you think about good brief writers in the same way? Yes, to a, to, to a great extent. I, I mean, of course, a little bit different. I mean, you often hear the phrase theory of the case, and I'm a big believer in that. You know, you should, you should be able to describe your case in two sentences. You should be able to say those two sentences to a neighbor a stranger, someone who's not a lawyer, they should understand the essence of the case. And if you've done it right, they should be sympathetic. And so, you know, I, I think that storytelling is part of that. I mean, to the extent that you can tell a, a concise, powerful story that's, that's memorable, that's understandable, you'll get, go a long way toward winning uh, your trial um, or your appeal. And, and you have that theory of the case whether it's in your opening statement or as you put together your your materials for trial or as you're writing your brief and as you are presenting your, your oral argument. You've talked about good oral argument at the Second Circuit, but we live in a very different context now given the pandemic. How have you found the experience of sitting remotely and how have you thought about the way advocates have behaved in front of you um, over Zoom or WebEx? Remote arguments are not satisfying. I, I do not enjoy them. We in the Second Circuit have been remote uh, for more than a year now. We started last March. Uh, in fact, I had uh, one of the first cases where we let lawyers argue by telephone. And then from last March through the end of the term in June, we did all telephone arguments. Starting this year, this term, starting in August, 
we went to a combination of Zoom and telephone, depending on the preferences of the panel. And as between telephone and Zoom, I very much prefer Zoom. I'm confident the lawyers very much prefer Zoom because you can see each other, you can get the visual cues, and it makes, it makes a, a big difference. A good argument is a good argument, you know, whether it's in person or on telephone or Zoom. Telephone is, is, is tough. You, you, first of all, you may not know who's talking, you know, if, if you don't know the voice. I make a, when I'm presiding by telephone, I make a point of having the judges say a few words at the outset so that the lawyers can hear the voices. Some presiders in the Second Circuit will have uninterrupted time for a, a few minutes when they're doing it on telephone, much like the Supreme Court is doing it. But I think there may, it may be that it's easier to focus on Zoom. I mean, there are some benefits. We uh, are not distracted by my law clerk sitting in the back of the courtroom making faces. You know, when you have it on speaker mode, it's just the, uh, or speaker view, that is, it's just the lawyer's face. And in, in some ways, uh, it's easier to follow the time when we do it, the clock, you know, simple thing like the clock. I worry about the clock because, you know, I preside most of the time. Um, and the clock is right there up on the screen, and it's easier to enforce the clock. On telephone, by the way, there's no clock. I have to keep it. I have to watch the clock myself, and then at the right time, I have to interrupt the lawyer and say, you've got one minute left or you're out of time, that kind of thing. So there are many reasons to prefer Zoom. There are some uh, mistakes that lawyers make. For example, we had a case where a lawyer kept looking down at his notes, and so we only saw the top of his head. We had another case where a lawyer's notes were off to the side, so he kept turning. And for much of the argument, we only saw half of his head. And I finally said something to him. You know, I said, you know, you, you're, 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 you should look at the camera. I did a moot court argument the other day for, for Fordham Law School, and one of the students had her camera set somewhere different from her screen, so she never gave eye contact because she was looking at her screen instead of at the camera. And so there are a number of things that one can do. You can think about your background. I don't want to see your bedroom when you're giving an argument to me on a case, that kind of thing. I suspect that some of this will, will remain with us because the technology does work so well. In the beginning, we had some glitches. Yet most of the time, it was inadequate Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, in a lawyer's home. We offer lawyers a practice session to make sure that, that things are working properly. And by all means, if you're in that situation, you should, you, should, you should take us up on that. You said that the Zoom argument is here to stay. What, what do you mean by that? Are we going to be doing most of our arguments by Zoom? No, I, I overstated that. I, I think some of it will stay. You may remember some years ago, we actually allowed lawyers to argue by video in the Second Circuit. And the technology was awful. There was a long delay. And then we eventually got rid of it. Given our experience now, and we haven't discussed this yet, but, but going forward, for example, if you are a government lawyer in northern Vermont, perhaps instead of coming down all the way to New York City to give a 10-minute argument, you might want the option of presenting it by video. You know, and, and I would think that we would be open to at least having that discussion to see whether we can allow that kind of an accommodation. 
And, and so we'll see. But there's no question that we want to be hearing cases uh, in person. I, I wouldn't be surprised that in general, if, if there is more flexibility, I mean, for example, I, I chair a committee and uh, we meet twice a year and we'll have 50 or 60 people coming in from Washington, D.C., Connecticut, Vermont, upstate New York. And you just think about the time and travel costs, et cetera, and, and, and maybe some of that will now be done remotely or combination of in-person and uh, remote. Carrying on on the issue of, of behavior by lawyers and what works and what doesn't, I'm interested to hear your views about obstreperous lawyers, lawyers who misbehave, even in the Second Circuit. I'm reminded of an experience you had not long before the pandemic in which a lawyer uh, sarcastically suggested that your question couldn't possibly be serious and, and later said that he didn't think you read the briefs. Could you comment a little bit about how you deal with lawyers who misbehave? Sure. And in that case, we wound up asking the court security officer to escort the lawyer out of the courtroom. And, and, and the next day, by the way, there's a headline because we were streaming, uh, you know, how would you like a news article like that about you? You know, it, it, it is crazy. And, and this lawyer was completely and utterly disrespectful. Fortunately, we do not see that very often in the Second Circuit. I encountered misbehaving lawyers a lot more often in the district court. And I think, by the way, often it was out-of-town lawyers who came in and who were not regulars, and I don't know whether they felt they had to be extra tough in big, bad New York City or what, but, but quite often I had difficulties with out-of-town lawyers. Uh, and of course, some in-town lawyers as well. And in fact, early on, I sanctioned a number of lawyers and wound up getting reversed several times by uh, the Second Circuit um, and having my sanctions uh, vacated. It's hard, you know. I know that as a lawyer myself, as a practicing lawyer, you wanted a judge to be tough. You did not want a judge who let the other side play games. And there was only so much that a lawyer can do, and you, you do need assistance from the court in, in, in that respect. But, you know, uh, uh, after getting reversed several times, I, I, it seemed to me I had to deal with things uh, somewhat differently. If we could shift back to the district court and your experience in the district court, we wanted to ask you a bit about your views about sentencing. I've always thought that when the, they were mandatory, the federal sentencing guidelines did the system a disservice by taking discretion out of the hands of the highly experienced and talented lawyers who we choose as judges. How, how did your approach to sentencing change, if at all, after the Booker decision? It did change. And first of all, sentencing is the hardest thing that judges will do. I mean, if you do a survey, the vast majority of judges, I believe, will say the hardest thing we do is, is sentencing. You know, there's so many considerations that come into play. The government is tugging at you, the defendant, the family members, the victims, society. And, you know, you're trying to, to factor all of these things in. Booker, if anything, made it harder. Uh, Booker made sentencing harder, but in a good way. Before, a judge could hide 
behind the sentencing guidelines. It was very, very hard back then to do a departure. You know, and a judge might say, I'm sorry, I, I really want to do better, but I can't, my hands are tied. And then suddenly uh, Booker gave us uh, the flexibility uh, to go above or below the guideline range as long as it was a reasonable sentence. And by the way, I found that lawyers talked more after Booker because they had more of a chance of getting a better and more reasonable sentence for their, for their client. In the old days, I, there were times when I would say to a lawyer, uh, I'm inclined to sentence at the bottom of the guideline range. So what do you want to tell me? You know, in that way, potentially the lawyer was going to get in trouble by arguing too much. Or you would sometimes see a lawyer argue really, really hard for a bottom of the range sentence, hoping that you would then get the idea and go below the range. I mean, that would happen too. It, that was a dynamic. But, but after Booker, you know, the, the, it, it, it was easier, uh, much easier to do the right thing to impose a reasonable sentence. And I, I think it's much, much better for us to have that discretion. I still, and by the way, just to follow up on an earlier discussion to tie it to, I still have a couple of district court matters, and I did a sentencing the other day by telephone. It was very, very difficult. You don't, you're not seeing anybody. You're not seeing anyone's expressions. It wasn't a hard sentence in the sense that it was a resentencing, and and there was only so much I was going to do anyway. Otherwise, I think I would really want to try to do it in person, particularly now as conditions have improved. But the defense lawyer, by the way, made a point of saying to me, the defendant's sister is on the phone. And that was smart because that told me, even though I couldn't see her, that there was someone there to support the defendant on the line who cared. And, you know, in, in, in real life, you would look out and you would see family members sitting in the back. And so that was uh, um, a good thing that defense counsel did. Judge, one of the cases that you had in the district court was the Bernie Madoff matter, and you famously sentenced him to 150 years in prison, calling his crimes extraordinarily evil. My question is this, in giving Madoff such a long sentence, were you trying to send a message more broadly that you thought sentences in white collar cases should be stiffer? No, uh, I was not. I was not trying to start a trend of tougher and longer sentences in white collar cases. I did not have a view on whether, as a general matter, uh, sentences in white collar cases were, were too low. I was imposing a sentence on Mr. Madoff on the facts before me, based on who he was and what he had done on all of the circumstances. And I felt that a, a, a really strong sentence was important because of, of all that he had done, the crime had gone on for so long, there was so much money involved. There were so many victims, not just wealthy people, but middle-class people who were saving their money for retirement or to send their grandchildren to college. And by the way, I did not sit there and say, wow, 150 years would be a great uh, number. None of the counts, there were 11 counts, none carried a life sentence. So I could not impose a life sentence. And what I did was I stacked the maximum sentences for each of the 11 counts. It added up to 150 years, 
which was which sent a much more effective message than life for a 71-year-old man. Well, Judge, you, you say you don't think about the Madoff sentences as sending a message more broadly, but I wonder whether you think differently about sentencing white-collar defendants from others. It's been argued that, that white-collar defendants are a particularly deterrable segment of the population, and therefore the message may matter, some would say, more in a white-collar case than in a different kind of case. Do you see differences? Yeah, well, first of all, I was trying to send a message, not necessarily in white-collar cases, but I was trying to send a, a, a message in general of deterrence. But it wasn't a focus on, on white-collar cases. Yeah, there are differences, of course. There's, there's, there's no violence involved. Although, you know, some of the victims in the Madoff case would have argued or were arguing that, that in essence, this was uh, tremendously violent, what he, he did to their, their lives. Usually, white-collar defendants don't have a record. Quite often, there are pressures. Well, there are in other cases as well. But, but there may be pressures from family. And, and then quite often in white-collar cases, they dig themselves in a hole. It's not so bad. But then as they try to get out of that hole, the hole gets bigger and then the conduct gets worse. So, I mean, there are different considerations. And um, it, it's hard to generalize about white-collar cases or other cases but certainly you can see that in many white-collar cases, there, there will be uh, mitigating circumstances that are not necessarily there when you're talking about racketeering or murder, distribution of uh, narcotics. Um, there will be different considerations. I don't think we can leave the discussion of Madoff and the sentencing in Madoff without asking you whether you saw The Wizard of Lies, the Netflix movie about Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Uh, yes, I did. That was the uh, Robert De Niro uh, movie. Uh, I watched it carefully. There were two courtroom scenes, and in fact, they used my words, not necessarily in the same order, but they, they plucked some of uh, my words from uh, the sentencing transcript and used them. Uh, there's no copyright issue since it's all a matter of public record and, and government uh, um, uh, product. My one disappointment was the actor who played me in the two courtroom scenes is an actor named Clem Chung, who's a fine actor, but he's a little bit older. He came across as a little bit cranky. I had been hoping for Daniel Day Kim of Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> well, shifting, shifting gears, I wanted to spend just a moment discussing with you the uh, Civic Education Committee that's been started in the Second Circuit by former Chief Judge Katzman. Uh, I believe it's called Justice for All, and I know that you've, you've played a leading role in that effort. Could you tell us a bit about what that's all about and, and why you're so committed to the, to the project? Yes, and of course, Lee, uh, you've been a member of that uh, committee as well from, from the beginning. Then Chief Judge Katzman brought together a large gathering of lawyers, judges, educators, with the goal of educating the public about our system of justice. The idea was to bring the public into the courthouses, and not just our courthouse, but all the courthouses throughout the circuit, to bring the courts to the public. And, and the program offered a number of activities. For example, uh, training for teachers. We would bring in uh, New York City 
public school teachers, teach them some things about the law, and then hope that they would take that back to their classrooms uh, for their students. We organized uh, court visits. Students, classes would come into the courthouse, get a tour, meet some judges and lawyers, and, 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 and hear about how the process worked. Judge Katzman created a learning center with sophisticated equipment, a mock uh, bench, and uh, actually a um, recording studio. Uh, to record things, uh, exhibits about, for example, Thurgood Marshall. And part of it also were reenactments, reenactments of historic cases, which have proven to be a tremendous teaching tool. And, and so that's part of our program uh, as well. Yeah, I know that's been a particular interest of yours for a number of years. You've um, actually scripted, written out, I think, 22 scripts of historical trials that you've then performed with other judges and lawyers over the years. Uh, tell us about that interest. I understand you spend your weekends often working on these uh, these scripts for reenactments. Yes, and, and so, you, first of all, you give me too much credit. Most of them were co-scripted by me and my wife, Kathy Chin, and we have worked with different groups of lawyers, including the Inn of Court, and both of you were members of are members of the Federal Bar Council in of court. And in fact, I credit Lee and, and our mutual friend, Judge Denise Cote, with getting me into the, the in of court many years ago. And it was there that I was exposed to my, my first reenactment. We've also done programs with the staff attorney's office and, and a number with the Asian American Bar Association of New York. We've done 12 about cases impacting and involving Asian Americans. And these are, are great teaching tools, you know, both the writing of the scripts, which involves research, finding transcripts, historic documents, historic photos, and putting together a uh, dramatic theatrical presentation, a play, um, you know, all for CLE credit. And both on the Asian American Bar Association website and on the Justice for All Second Circuit website, there are pages devoted to these reenactments. And so, for example, a high school class, a bar association, um, a civic organization can write in and request a script and we will send them our script so that they can present the program in their own community. So this is proven to be extraordinary, satisfying, and, and uh, uh, rewarding. Uh, we've done several in the Second Circuit, and we've, we've done many with judges playing certain roles. And, and by the way, law firms. Law firms have taken our scripts, for example, and used them for diversity events. And, and you need a cast of you know 15 or more people. And so you, you put into the cast the senior partner of the law firm, someone from the accounting department, a secretary, associates, and everyone is participating in the process. And then there's, they always make for good discussion because we're finding cases that not only are interesting and again, tell a good story about the people involved, but raise issues that are still uh, important today. Speaking of playing various roles in these uh, reenactments, my recollection judges that 
a number of years ago in one of your early efforts to reenact a historical trial, you played the defendant Julius Rosenberg. Yes, that, that is one of my favorite reenactments. And you had a role in that too, uh, Lee. And I picked the role of Julius Rosenberg because we were focusing on Ethel. And Julius was actually a very small part. I only had a couple of uh, small lines. But I will say this, you know, in, in our script, we reenact the sentencing. And having the judge impose the death sentence on me was not fun. And even though it was pretend, it was very uncomfortable. And I also, you know, during the summations, the defense lawyer is pointing at me and saying what an idiot I am, you know, and it just, it just was good for me as a judge to be sitting there as the defendant at a counsel table. Well, Judge, I, I, I'm very interested to know if you're working on another reenactment right now, and what is it? Well, we are. We submitted a proposal for a program on anti-Asian violence. Each year, Kathy and I and the Asian American Bar Association of New York present a program at the NAPABA Convention, which is the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. And uh, our proposal this year is for a program on violence against Asian Americans. Of course, this is triggered to a large extent by all that's been going on uh, in this country uh, in uh, the last year the last few months. And unfortunately, there is a long and sordid history of violence against Asian Americans in this country. It's not a recent phenomenon. In, in the late 1800s, for example, there, there was a lynching of 17 Chinese men and boys in Los Angeles. There were 28 Chinese railroad workers killed in a massacre in Wyoming. Uh, in Oregon, in 1887, 34 Chinese miners were killed by a gang of horse thieves, and their bodies were thrown into the Snake River. And there are many such incidents over the years. Some of them have gotten some attention uh, in recent weeks with all the columns that have been written, uh, in the publicity. At one point in the late 1800s, uh, in Seattle, for example, they rounded up 350 Chinese, and they were going to send them back to China on a steamship. And the mob only had enough money to send back 97. But the effort had its effect, as many of the Chinese went back voluntarily because they, they, they just could not stay. And, and, and there have been other cases throughout the years. There seem to be triggering events, you know, whether it's the, uh, often it's the economy, or after 9-11, of course, there were events triggered. And so we are working on that now as a uh, program for this year. Well, that sounds like a very important and timely and unfortunately timeless topic. I note that in February, in fact, you presided over an important milestone, which was the first panel in the Second Circuit to have three Asian American judges on the panel. It was you, Judge Matsumoto, who I also clerked for, and Judge Park. As I said, this feels like an important milestone, but hopefully just the beginning. And you mentioned that you are very involved in the Asian American Bar Association of New York and NAPABA. 
Can you talk about some of your other efforts to encourage and promote diversity in the legal profession, particularly on behalf of Asian Americans in the bar? Yes, absolutely. That was a, a moment of immense pride for me, by the way, uh, you know, presiding with my colleagues, Judge Matsumoto and, and Judge Park. I, I think, by the way, I'm not sure that it is the first anywhere. Perhaps the Ninth Circuit had a panel of three Asian American judges. I don't know for sure. But certainly this was the, the, the first time uh, in the Second Circuit. When I was uh, uh, appointed uh, in 1994, there were only four or five Article Three Asian American judges in the entire country. We've done much better uh, since then. But even in 2010, when I was appointed to the circuit court, I became the only active Asian American uh, circuit judge in the country. There had been zero. You know, we had Judge Tashima in the Ninth Circuit, but he had taken senior status some years earlier. So there were zero active Asian American circuit judges in the entire country in 2010. And so, as, as you've gathered from my remarks, I was happy being in the trial court, but I knew that I could help break the zero. And so when I was asked if, if people could put my name in for the circuit court, it was hard for me to, to say no. And, and we're, we're, we're up to about 30 Asian American Article Three judges in the country now. Uh, you know, still probably underrepresented, but we're doing um, much better. I'm, you know, I think it's incredibly important um, that we continue to work on uh, diversifying the bench and diversifying the profession in general. The quality of justice will be better. It's not just a matter of appearances. The appearances are important, but I think the quality of, of, of justice will be better. I remember trying a case where it was a um, Chinese extortion case, one of those dollar vans uh, in Chinatown where people would get on the bus for a dollar or the van for a dollar and then ride into Chinatown to go to work. The five defendants were Chinese and spoke no English. All the victims were Chinese and spoke no English. And yet all the agents, the, the defense lawyers, the five defense lawyers, the prosecutors were all white, white men, I believe. And you could see some of the constraints presented by, by those circumstances. I mean, at, at one point, for example, one of the witnesses was identifying one of the defendants and defense counsel stood up as defense counsel often do to concede the identification, to take the sting out of the uh, identification. But it wasn't his guy. It was a different defendant, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing that, 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 that I mean, uh, it, it just will improve the quality of justice if, if we get more diversity on the bench and in the uh, profession. Well, Judge, we could go on and on. Uh, this has been really a gripping, fascinating, and often powerful experience talking with you about these important issues. We thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to both of you and, and seeing you both, if only remotely, and hopefully soon we'll be able to get together in person. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. 
White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod. Copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.